Hello, and welcome to the Sports Technology Podcast. I'm Henry Hansen, and in this episode, Mike Vasquez and I speak with Ben Lindsay, co-founder of the Australian-based company Solution. He and his co-founders have developed, validated, and commercialized a medical device to reduce healing time of shin splints. We talk about sports injuries and the entrepreneurial path Ben took to identify a problem worth solving, solve it, and scale it. Enjoy! Ben, you're uh, an engineer, you're an athlete, and also an entrepreneur, I think. Uh, some of Close. Our, uh... I would say ex-athlete. Uh, ex-athlete. <laughs> yeah, Henry, well, yeah, ex-athlete. Still yeah. trying to stay fit. When you introduce yourself, what do you, what do you most uh, identify with in those? Uh, so I definitely identify more with um, probably being the founder of Solutions. So, you know, being an engineer and, you know, developing a medical device, taking it to market. But then the other hat I wear is I'm the program manager for Incubate at the University of Sydney in Australia, where any student, staff, alumni, researcher, anyone who has an idea, uh, develop programs to help them kind of take that idea, you know, to kind of a commercial reality. So we've got a big network of investors over here, not as big as in the States uh, at all, big for Australia. We're, We're proud of it. Uh, and then, you know, help them get their idea off the ground as well. And what got you started down the entrepreneur kind of small business track? Was it something like, were you always kind of more directed in, in, in that way? Or was there something that kind of stuck with, with you about a small company? No, not, not at all. I think um, I did a unit of study in my undergrad called Tech Venture Creation. So I was doing biomedical engineering, focusing on kind of a mix of mechanical and biomedical engineering. Uh, Being an athlete, it was kind of just something that interested me. I started off in kind of offshore civil, you know, looking at oil and gas uh, as a potential route to go. Didn't enjoy it. Um, And then I actually, biomedical mechanical was kind of my shift towards, you know, laying a foundation to go into medicine with. Um, Thought it might be cool to try and become a orthopedic surgeon or a sports physician however I did this unit of study in my undergrad tech venture creation which was this idea of you know teaching you about how to make a business the startup scene I got excited by it and it was just one unit of study that kind of shifted everything for me and changed my perspectives and had no interest didn't even try and get into medicine I've just gotten straight into trying to make a product and get it off the ground (laughs) (laughs) straight off the bat of that. And that was about six years ago. I did that unit of study and then I started Solution uh, five years ago with two others. And we've been selling it now after all the clinical trials and things like that for just over a year. Um, Earlier, did you, when you were an, when you were an athlete competing at quite a high level swimming, did did the, uh, the biomedical side and kind of the, maybe the more technical side of, of the body. Was that something that was apparent, relevant? Was that something you thought a lot about as you were as yeah. you were an athlete or did that come later? Yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, there's, I was a sprinter, uh, so a lot of technique involved. So, you know, a lot of athletes like me, often the, the term of paralysis by analysis, every now and then I would have that, looking too much into my technique and what was going on with my body. Um, but, you know, there wasn't too much crossover really, you know, I think the biomechanics side is a bit separate to the biomedical 
engineering, even though it's got the the bio meh at the start, you know, the same same first kind of starting point. But um, yeah, no, it went pretty well. Um, swimming was fun, but the crossover, you know, like you're passionate about sport. Once you've been in sport, you want to kind of stick with it and keep your your, your fingers in. And I, th- I thought biomedical engineering would be a cool way to do that. And what was the spark or what was the idea behind Solution? So I met Will, who's now, he's, he's training up to be an orthopedic surgeon. He was a runner. So we met each other at the Australian Institute of Sport at first. Um, so I was swimming there on a kind of a scholarship um, over from Western Australia. Uh, Will was a runner, met in the food hall, got to know each other a little bit, but it wasn't until I kind of moved to Sydney you know, we kind of reconnected on this idea that I was studying engineering. He was studying to be a doctor. He'd also found another athlete, Rosa, who was a gymnast, who was an industrial designer. She had an interest in making and designing medical devices as well. And we kind of thought, well, we're actually at three different universities in Sydney, you know, came from three different sports, three different backgrounds, you know, back then there's the buzzword, you know, of cross-functional teams. You know, you know, we thought, hey, could we come together with these different backgrounds entirely and see what we could make for this kind of common issue of injuries in athletes? And, you know, the idea behind Solution, if I'm honest, it was quite analytical. You know, Will obviously had the injury. We'd all actually suffered from the injury, uh, medial tibial stress syndrome, called, often called shin splints. You know, for me as a swimmer, if I got shin splints, was not the end of the world right? You know, I just, the physio or the physical therapist would say, what are you doing? Why are you running? You know, <laughs> you're a swimmer, get, get back in the pool. But for Will and Rosa, you know, Will being a runner, Rosa being a gymnast, you know, it could be a season kind of ender. And the biggest kind of, or the most reliable form of treatment at the time is rest, right? So rest and recover. There's clinical trials showing that if you've had the injury for eight weeks, you, were, you shouldn't expect to return to pain-free training for 250 days, all these different things. So it just kind of sucked. And that was part of the argument. We did an ice table. So impact, cost, ease of execution, just something super simple at a variety of injuries that we were passionate about trying to solve. And we thought that this injury was going to be the one to start with. A lot of people suffer from it. Depending on the study, between four and upwards of 80% of certain populations will get it. So four to 20% in the general population, 35% in the kind of broader athlete or military, and then, you know, female athletes in hockey. So uh, field hockey and netball, you know, upwards of 80% can suffer from this injury. And for 250 days off being, being the recommended time, well, not completely off uh, until they return to pain-free. That's just quite a large number of sufferers. And what's the main, is it, is it stress fractures? Is that essentially what's happening or is it what, what's actually happening when someone has a shin splint? Well, so there's two common theories, um, which are pretty hard to decipher. So every paper will wrap up saying it could be one or the other, or a combination of both, uh, which makes it nice and fun. Uh, so you've got the bone loading theory. So, yep. So you're excessively loading the tibia. So the shin bone too soon, you know, typical typical runner doing too much too soon you know so the bone remodeling process you're 
you know, osteoclastic activity. So the bone's been breaking down, you know, is outweighing the osteoblastic. So building the bone back up. So basically the bone responds to this stress by getting inflamed. So the sheath around the bone, the periosteum gets inflamed. Following that, you've got some more internal kind of things occurring. So bone marrow edema, intracortical changes. So, so your cortical bone, you know, starting to channel, you know, form little channels and starting to deteriorate. And then that, if you continue again and again to excessively load, can lead to a stress fracture, right? So if you think of, you have a limestone block, right? Two limestone blocks next to each other. One's got like an ant's nest inside, right? Of channels and space. And then the other's the solid limestone block. If you took your hammer to one of them, you know, you know which one's going to be more brittle and which is going to break, right? So if you excessively load your bone, it deteriorates and you start to get things like osteopenia occurring where the bone density is lower, you know, it, you can't withstand the load. So that's one of the theories, excessive bone loading. The other theory, which shin splints, the term was coined for in the, the 50s uh, over in the States, uh, was for kind of a fascial traction injury. So the fascia where the muscle inserts into the bone, the muscles would get overactive, they would be dysfunctioning, weak, they would pull on the fascia, which would lead to the inflammation of the periosteum, right? So that's the other theory. And I think the commonalities which we try to address, like we treat it as, you know, why can't it be both on, on our team? The commonalities of this inflammation, this periostitis, you know, the soleus as one of the calf muscles regularly implicated in both the bone loading theory because it helps counteract the tibial bending forces. And then on the other side, the soleus is also involved in this fascial traction theory. We thought, all right, let's target inflammation of the, perios of the periosteum and let's target the soleus because in the end, you know, the research isn't conclusive on which theory it is, but we thought we could, you know, depending like, irrespective of which theory we could cause a benefit was out with this hypothesis. And then we had to go out and show we did basically. Yeah. I think choosing, choosing to go after um, shin splints, I think um, you said a minute ago, I think that's kind of an interesting way to go after it. Frequently new products or, or medical interventions come up academic research or some, yep kind of experience in the field. And this one, the way you've described it, it sounds like you had a blank paper and you wanted to like look at the most important problem to solve in the injury injury area and yep. then go after it. I think that's that's quite a, I don't know, that's, that's surprising. That's a cool way to do it. Yeah, no, well, everyone, it's the motivation, Will in particular, so Will McNamara, um, the doctor now, wasn't a doctor back then. Uh, he was very much, walked into the room and was like, we've got to do this injury. And then I was like, come on, we've got to do a shoulder. Um, <laughs> you know, my shoulders are shot from swimming. Can we please do a shoulder? And then he mentioned the injury and I was like, oh, I got that. And the physio just told me, like, it's, it's honest, like the physio just told me, stop running, like you're a swimmer. Uh, when we were doing cross training, let's stop skipping, just get on the bike. So I never thought much of it. I thought of it as cool don't have to do any running. I can <laughs> do something else now. Um, yeah, but you know, the, the same kind of mindset issues approach, like all these injuries, irrespective of an amateur through to a professional athlete, you know, 
for the professional, you're taking them away from their training, you know, excelling towards a goal. For an amateur athlete, they're still excelling towards a goal. Um, but what we found as well from, you know, t- engaging and talking to a lot of them as part of our design process, there was a huge mental aspect to running, uh, more than we anticipated. And it actually caused quite a big issue mentally for a lot of these people who rely on running as an output uh, to take it away from them. And they didn't get satisfied with swimming laps or going on the stationary bike or cross training, like they needed running. So, yeah. And how does the product work? Kind of what's the mechanism that, that makes it effective? So it's very simple uh, when you look at it. Um, it's basically a glorified uh, sock. Just kidding. Uh, it's a nice sleeve. It's got four horizontal straps. The top three straps have these compressive nodes on them that you can track along uh, to target some points, which I'll get to in a tick. And then in the sleeve, there's a compressive rod. Now, those top three compressive nodes, what they're doing well, the hypothesis was we were reading papers on myofascial pain disorder. Uh, and basically what we saw in these pain disorders was extrafusal muscle fibers. So tight, taut bands of muscle uh, at the origins of the soleus of the calf muscle, you know, was quite common in, uh, you know, in athletes, in people doing a lot of activity. And what, what we found, well, what this research showed was if we applied mechanotherapy to the origins of the soleus and the insertion of the soleus, so these three points, you know, that we could actually reduce muscle over contraction, right? So that was some research. And what we were looking to do was make a high, an easy, high compliant way of applying mechanotherapy for the soleus. The periostitis inflammation, that's an easy one, right? We just made a rod to go along the distal third of the shin bone. So the furthest third closest to the ankle, you know, just on the border, you know, tackle the inflammation there. And then the straps, you know, they apply an inframedial torsion. So they pull the calf around to the border as well. So to offload any, uh, any pull uh, from where the muscles insert to the bone. <clears throat> so that was our hypothesis, particularly the myofascial pain disorder stuff, you know, cause it is a little bit complicated, but the device, it's, a, it's an easy way to apply this complicated, like relatively complicated theory. Um, we did an RCT on medial tibial stress syndrome where we had some external sports doctors do it. And then we did a prospective cohort study for ankle range of motion. So ankle range of motion was our measure of showing, do we, without biopsying, uh, people you know do we actually reduce tension in the in the calf muscle and we showed that we did and then with the mtss so the medial tibial stress syndrome clinical trial they also showed you know a much quicker return than than placebo yeah that's um from from some experience in the sports industry industry in general, it's yeah. always difficult to make um, strong claims. And I think a lot of companies avoid it. And for a medical product, yeah. I imagine it's, it's not the easiest thing to bring to the market for those reasons. Um, no. And we, we, we get a bit, I don't know if you've ever experienced it. If you get people who get much better results than your research, you know, you, you can't, we avoid actually trumping it 
you know, like, uh, so we often get patients who do get quicker results than what we, we consider typical expected results. And we kind of say, well, awesome. Uh, and then if a clinician is the person treating that patient, we go, okay, awesome, but remind them of the typical results so they don't get disappointed if someone else comes along and, <laughs> you know, you know, takes the typical time. So what's the, like, conventionally I've seen, like, there's rest, right? But yep. then there's that, like, devil device where you just, like, roll a stick over your calves, which I've done <laughs> for, uh, over your shins and that. Yeah. So like, where, where would this fall? Like, would you like use it while you're active or recovery? Like do you use it all the time. What's the like yep. protocol typically? Well, the fun thing about this, the, the study, which has translated into how it's used is they were asked to use it, use it before or after training. So it wasn't designed. So in the design process, right. So when we were developing our design inputs, we knew from talking to runners that they didn't want to wear this when running, right? They didn't want to wear anything when running other than shoes and a Garmin watch, you know, basically, right? Like just leave them alone. So we knew this couldn't affect their running. You know, then you had runners who get up at 4am already, you know, to run marathons or half marathons before they go to work. We're not going to want to give them something that they must use before training um, but then also, you know, could they make it, could we make it something after, but then again, there was runners who said, oh, I don't like doing anything after training. I like finishing and I want to use it before. So we had a bit of a problem at the start that kind of resolved itself, if I'm honest, um, of whether or not it needed to be a before or after running tool. So in the clinical study, the sports registrars said you must wear it before and after for up to two hours at a time, uh, exercise, uh, before or after exercise. And the patients were naughty. Uh, and then they just picked before or after, <laughs> you know, whatever worked for them. Um, and then we learned from the, 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 the stats and all the research there that there was no statistical difference, you know, so they both got very good long-term outcomes, what medium to long-term outcomes picking before or after, right? So there was some short-term feedback in the different, like that were different. Um, but what that's allowed us to do is tell patients, right? You know, it's your routine. Yeah, you know, where are you gonna be most compliant? Where is it gonna fit in best with you? We'll start to tell people if we notice that before or after is better, you know, on their return to sport, we don't have that yet. You know, we don't know what, the, what, what it is yet. We just know that if you wear it before a run, that in that run, you'll have less pain, right? So, because it helps, you know, with a bit, you know, helps address the pain there. And then after the run, people, when their calves are feeling nasty after the run, you know, we're re reducing tension in the calves. They get a awesome release in their calf tension right away. So we're coming back to kind of your devil tool, the roller. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the previous treatment out there. So rest, rest isn't the best option in my opinion. Even if you're not using our device, you should you should deload but still remain at load, and then get a graded running program and kind of slowly build back up. If you completely rest, it obviously depends on how severe your injury is. But if you completely rest, you you're not going to stimulate, you know, 
that the you know you're not going to stimulate the shin bone the tibia right so it's just you need to still maintain some stimulation there right so that's coming out of recent research actually i believe in wollongong in australia as well there's a biomechanics lab that looked at that i'm not sure if they're published yet or it's just been conference papers he's he's they're pushing quite heavily on no don't completely rest you should back off and then slowly build back up there's strengthening all these other things you can do orthotics have been shown for prevention you know to help prevent you know, in naval recruits another recent study like very recent march this year published was highlighting that orthotics as a part of a you know multifaceted or multimodal approach to treating the injury can help you know there's a lot of other things but the fact is all of them were kind of just showing this slow return right so you know as soon as someone's had the injury for eight weeks there was no there was no difference between you know strengthening graded running program and strengthening graded running program strengthening you know the old school compression sleeves just those normal kind of sleeves that people wear on their calves you know there was no difference between those groups and they could expect to wait almost nine months to a year to return um you know so those sticks I, I never used. I've never actually seen them kind of researched. I know people go for them. Every time I've seen it, you, the sticks used though, they tend to be more like kind of Muay Thai athletes just trying to build up their resilience, getting kicked in the shins. Um, but again, one of the problems we have is with shin splints. I know there's a lot of soft tissue release that can be done on the anterior border of the shin bone for the tibialis anterior. Um, shin splints is an umbrella term and one of the injuries that falls under the umbrella terms this overexertion of the other side of the shin bone uh, on the tibialis anterior and I think if I just kind of piece the dots together if you're rolling up and down there there's a huge soft tissue component along that border and I can imagine that gets some nice release going um, when, when, when you asked that you weren't going right on the bone were you or is <laughs> When I, when I've done it before, it's never been super helpful or well, I've, I've never really had shin splints. Um, yeah. like I've had tight calves, so probably yeah. lucky that I've not had shin splints, but I've done yeah. it before and just out of curiosity, cause I see a lot of runners doing it and I'm like, yeah, this sucks. <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had some shin splint problems when I was in middle school, I think, and, and never again. I also have a, a, a bag or a box with a couple of those torture type devices. So, I don't know. I, I also think there might be for those, maybe also a little bit of a placebo. Um, there's definitely like, I don't know, there's definitely a feeling to them and kind of a, a ritual around it. But um, yeah. so, so like in, in the development um, up, up to this point, I guess, talking about how you started yeah. and how you developed it. Um, did you have any involvement with uh, incubators or accelerators um, like the, group you work with now and your own in the solution? Um, yes. So in New South Wales, um, in Australia, there's the, the kind of health department, New South Wales Health, they actually run this program called the Medical Device Commercialization Training Program. They need to shorten the name. I'll, I'll uh, you know, so everyone just calls it MDCTP, which is still too long. Um, yeah. But right, so there's this program there. It's usually full of, you know, you know, kind of, you know, specialists, you know, so doctors, surgeons, like the, you know, all the way through to biomedical researchers. 
And the idea is they put you there. They don't give you any funding, but it's to teach you to kind of translate, you know, an idea, you know, to a commercial reality, but for med tech, right? Because if you go into a startup accelerator where they teach you lean startup methodologies, it's only going to get you so far with a medical device, right? This term of minimum, minimum viable product, right? For an app to be developed, right? There's no regulation regulatory requirements for a lot of these apps right so if you're making a medical device and you want to start selling it you know there is a few more loopholes <laughs> that you need to go through um, so that program we participated in that um, my colleague rosa and i participated in that so will uh, you know didn't you know he was trying he's still training up to be an orthopedic surgeon we use him in a different capacity to how rosa and i operate uh, in solution. So we participate in that. Rosa actually duxed it, which was awesome because, you know, she's a designer and everyone looked at her and said, you're a designer surrounded by surgeons. You're in trouble. Like, <laughs> like actually, and then she ended up just destroying them all, uh, which was awesome to see. Um, so we did that. We've, we got accepted into another one, which I won't name, but we didn't, we couldn't agree to the terms of investment. I felt they were a bit cheeky <laughs> with, with their term sheet. So we just, you know, didn't come to an agreement there. But in the end, you know, the benefit of having clinical trials running externally and, you know, part of our differentiation was there was a lot of products out there that said they support the injury. So they couldn't make claims of treatment, you know, so we wanted to do these clinical studies you know, to, to kind of as part of a differentiation strategy, it meant that I could go get a job for a bit, right? So there wasn't much to do while the clinical trials were going on. Um, got it to the clinical trials. I went and actually led the sales. So I couldn't, I was an engineer. I wanted to learn how to, you know, build a business, do the selling distributions. Some mentors at the time started a health drink company. I went and led the sales there. Um, and then once the clinical trial data had started to kind of come to fruition, you know, I left that job, fortunately, with enough savings to afford, you know, my third of the patent costs and all these other things to get the business up and running. So in the end, the three of us were able to invest, you know, savings that we accrued over a few years. You know, I think it helped that the clinical trials were going because we had this mindset of saving to invest um, between the three of us and we've been able to get to this point of it's on the market you know we're looking to launch down to the uk and us later this year without external investment um but to add to that it wasn't easy i ate a lot of egg sandwiches <laughs> um <laughs> i ate a lot of very low budget spaghetti bolognese and tuna pasta bake <laughs> you know to, to save the amount of money required so it could have been easy to get investment but in the end you know investment and accelerators for, for their funds, we were able to kind of get to where we are without them. I see. Now, I guess the, um, like the randomized control, controlled trials, the clinical trials, that's quite a lot to do. It takes a lot of time and, and effort and yeah. IP protection as well. But once, yep. once you have that, I guess you're in quite a, quite a strong position to make um, good claims and uh, a strong product. That's kind of the, the benefit of yeah. going through that process. You have quite a lot to show for it. Yeah, but you still can't beat your chest. You can't walk in and say, this is the new way. Um, 
to particularly, you know, we sell, it's different for every market in, in Australia. Actually, there's a big musculoskeletal focus in podiatry. Um, I know in the US, I was talking to some podiatrists there. It looks like it's an athletic trainer kind of market for, for us over there to, to get in front of athletes. Um, here in Australia, the podiatrists have been very receptive because I didn't come in and say, here's the research. This is how you do it now, right? Which, which a lot of products, uh, a lot of brands have done. They just go, yeah, whatever. Um, so while we had that evidence and those claims, you know, we still walked in, still got them to tell us where they would use it still, you know, from you've got your research component and then you've also got the commercial component and commercial viability and, you know, commercial viability requires us to understand how the customers are going to use it as well and where they see it fits. So getting them engaged in it, you know, and kind of just telling them what our claims were, but getting them to help direct how to use it and how they saw fit seemed to get it adopted really strongly in the market over here. Good. So as, uh, as we, uh, come to uh, come to an end now. I wonder if you have any advice for uh, anyone else with a, with an idea that they're trying to make real, bring to market, medical device or otherwise. So we were a little bit lucky that we were athletes, and when we went out, so we spoke to about five hundred runners and seventy three clinicians over a half year, um, and we were fortunate that our own bias didn't lead us astray, right? And how we think, you know, people should use it. So we accidentally made the product and filed the patent before we engaged enough people. But in the end, while the commercial kind of go-to-market change, the product itself didn't have to. What I've seen in my role as the program manager at Incubate is that is not often the case. You know, so you have this idea for a certain group of people, you invest all this time and money in getting it off the ground and then you put it in front of the target customer and the target customer has it's not doesn't amaze them like you thought it would you know they don't really care for it so my biggest piece of advice you know is when you've got an idea the first thing you should do is look at your customer segment engage them understand their pains and their frustrations with what they're trying to achieve you know, also understand people often forget what they like, you know, so if you're targeting someone, what do they, who's, and this is something you're trying to fix, uh, fix a problem at work. What do they also like at work? Because you want something that improves the good things and reduces the frustrations. And then ask yourself, this product I'm developing, does it actually do those things, right? And if it doesn't, you know, do you need to change your product or do you need to pick a different customer? Right. Um, we were lucky that we didn't do it in the right order and our product actually fit a group of people, the group of people we were targeting. I've seen it not happen more often where, you know, a group of engineers or inventors will go, we're making this product. It's going to be for these people. They spend all this time and money developing the product. They never take it out. They never engage the people they're making it for to understand who they really are. And then they don't want the product. So get out in front of those people first. And if you're an engineer listening to this all and you want to make it more dull and boring, you know, less startup-y, you know, 
from a quality management standpoint and generating a product, you know, for all, for a lot of the ISO standards in product realization, you have to generate user needs and design inputs. And it's a great way to do it before you make your product, you know, get their input, understand who they are as a way to design your product. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for the conversation today. We'll post some links to the product, the product web website, and uh, look forward to continuing to see your story and your progress and see it on the shelves in the U.S. soon. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Henry. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. And thanks, listeners, for listening. For more information, check out our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com. And feel free to reach out at sportstechnologypodcast at gmail.com with comments or questions. Have a nice day.